in many ways, food allergy families were, were born for this moment. We are always sanitizing our surfaces and washing our hands as we prepare and eat food. We are always questioning ingredients and reading labels. We were doing this for, we've been doing this for years. Welcome to Food Allergy and Your Kiddo with Dr. Alice Hoyt, the podcast about demystifying food allergies, diminishing allergy anxiety, and taking back control. Let's navigate this challenge together with evidence-based information, scientific research, and tried and proven practices. And now, here's your host, board-certified allergist and immunologist specializing in food allergy, Dr. Alice Hoyt. Hey, y'all. Welcome to today's show. I'm over the moon excited to have food allergy advocate powerhouse Jen Jobrak with us today. She's going to be talking about what is and is not regulated on that nutrition label that we all see, that we all scrutinize when we go to the grocery store and we're trying to select safe foods for our families. So after the next 20 to 25 minutes, you're going to come away with a whole new understanding of that ingredients list. It's important to note that at the time of this recording, it's late June, early July, we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic, that the FDA has relaxed some of the regulations pertaining to ingredients listed on the food label. We're going to dive into that with Jen today. She's been advocating for food allergy families since the mid-2000s when her own son was diagnosed with food allergy. They were at a restaurant, he was just over a year of age, and he had an allergic reaction. Prior to that, he did not have a diagnosis of food allergy, but he saw his pediatrician who referred him to an allergist, and within a week or so, he had that diagnosis of peanut allergy. And since then, Jen has been advocating not just for her own son, but for everyone's sons and daughters who has a food allergy. And she's done tremendous work in this space and is just incredibly knowledgeable especially about the food label. So without any further ado, let's dive right in with Jen Jobra. Hey, Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. I'd love for you to, to tell our listeners a little bit more about the history of the nutrition label, the food label that's on the back of, of food packaging in the United States and how you got how you became involved in that space sure i was very fortunate to start working for fair uh in 2010 first with the food allergy initiative which was one of the legacy organizations that merged to form fair in 2012 i had been hired by the food allergy initiative to open the chicago office uh brand new office within a few months of joining I was able to use my background in public policy and advocacy on a variety of food allergy issues. One of them that consistently came up was food labeling. And that work, as your listeners may know, is largely regulated by the, the Food and Drug Administration um, and to some degree, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So the most significant improvement to food labeling as it pertains to food allergy consumers occurred years ago, even before the episode we were discussing. It was in 2004. It's the Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act, FALCBA, great acronym. And the intention of that, that act 
is to improve the food labeling information for families purchasing food for people with food allergies. It's basically an amendment uh, to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and it requires that the label of a food that contains an ingredient that is uh, a major food allergen or contains the protein of a major food allergen declare the presence of that allergen uh, on the label. It also defined the quote unquote top eight allergens, which were at the time understood to cause 90% of the allergic reactions in the US. And those allergens or allergen groups are milk, eggs, fish, crustacean shellfish, tree nuts, peanuts, wheat, and soybeans. And that is what is referred to as the big eight. So any ingredient that is derived from or contains any of those big eight allergens must, according to Falkba, be clearly listed on an ingredient label. This was, as I understand it, because I was not yet a food allergy parent, not paying attention to these issues back in 2004, but this was a transformative law for people trying to purchase safe foods for their family. And I might add that there are benefits to the community beyond folks with food allergy. It includes folks with celiac disease or other uh, medical dietary conditions. It was a really a, a major step forward. Um, that said, even back then, the FDA recognized that there are more than 160 foods that have been identified as causing allergic reactions. So the top eight, which again, accounted for 90% of known reactions in the US, was never going to be an exhaustive list. And um, yet it really has not only changed grocery buying for the food allergic community, but it's created a, a good set of guardrails up until recently for uh, knowing what's in the food. And you mentioned that it created guardrails up until recently. I think you're probably talking about the situation um, that we're dealing with now with COVID and the relaxation of some of those regulations. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So in response to the COVID pandemic, there was early on some concern uh, by the food industry and consumer groups alike, that there would be some disruption to the food supply chain, as well as changes in consumer demand in the grocery store as more people were eating at home and preparing their own foods. The FDA issued some guidance regarding uh, flexibility, as they call it, and if I may quote this in their April release, FDA provides flexibility to the food industry to support food supply chain and meet consumer demand during COVID-19. And what this, what this does, what this did, is that it, it provided flexibility for nutrition and ingredient labeling on certain packaged foods. If, for instance, a food manufacturer could not uh, acquire an ingredient in the making and formulation of a grocery item, 
that that ingredient could be substituted with a different item without the labeling of that ingredient. So one example might be using bleached flour instead of unbleached flour in a, let's say, a cookie. The exception to this, as articulated by FDA, is that you could not substitute an allergen on an ingredient label. You could not, I guess, insert an allergen into the preparation of a food in an unlabeled fashion. It had to be called out similar to the guidelines of FALCBA. So if, for instance, and this is a hypothetical, you were using almond butter in a cookie instead of cashew butter, you would have to identify that you had used almonds instead of cashews. The problem is, as we alluded to a minute ago, that there are many, many foods that cause allergic reactions. And there are limitations of what uh, FALCBA requires food, food companies to do. One of them is that herbs, spices, natural flavorings do not need to be called out by FALCBA by the 2004 law. This is why you frequently see ingredient lists on packaged foods and at the end, toward the end, it might say natural flavors. Some of those natural flavors can be allergens. So in short, if you're allergic to something beyond the top eight, you may not have transparency in on the ingredient label during COVID. And there is no clear sense right now of when that relaxed guidance may end. So for the foreseeable future, consumers that are managing non-top eight allergens really have to do extra work to determine what's in their foods. I want to I note that the guidance does not list all ingredients known to cause sensitivities in people. The FDA advises, but does not require, manufacturers to avoid substituting ingredients with other ingredients recognized as priority allergens. And so they do, they do mention in their, uh, in their guidance that sesame, celery, lupin, buckwheat, mollusks, and mustard should not be substituted, but it is a recommendation from the FDA, not a requirement. And I think there is some concern in the community that because it's just a recommendation, there's an opportunity for manufacturers perhaps to not square the circle on the inclusion of those allergens. Hi there, this is Alexis from the Hoyt Institute of Food Allergy. Did you know that the Institute is the official sponsor of the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast? And did you also know that you are now able to connect with Dr. Hoyt directly? That's right. We are now offering food allergy office hours for parents. These one-on-one virtual sessions are available for parents all across the country. It's an educational session, not an office visit, where you can ask all of your food allergy questions and finally get answers. It's as comfortable as having a cup of coffee with your bestie. 
Simply click the link in the show notes to schedule and mention this ad. We are so, so excited to connect with parents across the globe with this new service. Okay, now back to Pam and Dr. Hoyt. So with these changes or the relaxation of these regulations associated with COVID, then manufacturers um, can substitute ingredients. Is there any direction as to where that change would be denoted on the product? Would it be a, a sticker over the, uh, the previous ingredients? Can you, can you shed a little light on that? Let me reiterate that the way that the FDA released this information was referring to it as providing flexibility to the food industry. It did not say providing flexibility and support to the food allergy community or to consumers, which suggests that uh, we we are aware that representatives of the food industry did converse with and interact with FDA in the formulation of these relaxed guidelines. My understanding um, is that the FDA has recommended several different ways that the information could be shared. It could be a sticker. It could be point of sale signage in the store, on the uh, brand social media channels and website or with their call centers. But the FDA has not required any particular means of sharing that information. The challenge, of course, is that this puts the onus squarely on the shoulders of the consumer who literally has to stand in the grocery aisle in the middle of a pandemic and spend even more time reading the food label than she already might just to make sure that nothing has changed. The other concern that I've heard is that if you look at the typical manufacturing process of a of a of a food like a cookie or a loaf of bread or a cereal the supply of boxes and labels and packaging is printed months in advance so turning on a dime to suddenly uh, indicate that a new ingredient is present when you've got old stock there's some concern about human error and whether that would actually happen Now, I should say that representatives of the food industry uh, were on a call recently convened by FAIR and said that they have not used this flexibility and would hope not to and would expect not to. That is, I suppose, useful information. But the concern that many consumers still have is that if there is a need to, we're really relying on the good faith and flawless execution of food companies which makes some consumers feel like there's no guardrail in place in case human error occurs. And the food allergic families that I know are already have a heightened anxiety level by virtue of the pandemic and whether an emergency room visit would be necessary in the event of an adverse reaction. So that did little, that did little to calm those fears. And when we were discussing this this topic before our our chat today, you also brought up the very real point of a lot of families are utilizing the newer resource of having people do their shopping for them. 
Um, and if it is a point of sale change to what what's in the food, then your shopper, unless you have taught them through that app, hey, I'm allergic to fill in the blank. If it has fill in the blank, don't don't buy it. Um, you're really relying on that shopper to see any added signage in the grocery store if it's a sign um, right right under where the product is being sold saying, hey, this actually contains peach instead of apple, um, which could be a big deal to somebody who is allergic to peach. It's an excellent and necessary point to raise how many folks are not doing their own shopping daily, either through a service or through a well-meaning family member or friend. And there is great concern about whether some of these shopping services take are, are in a position to have their personnel uh, peruse the label every time because they also are under pressure to shop as quickly as possible and move on to the next customer's needs. So the consumer would then need to read the label when the food arrives at her doorstep and hopefully the food is safe, but there will likely be instances where items cannot be consumed. That happened to our family, actually. We had a delivery of a product that clearly was unsafe for my son and ended up having to give it away to a neighbor because we couldn't return it. Not because of the, not because of this guidance, just because the the shopper didn't read the label carefully in the first place. Oh, that's so frustrating. Well, one of the last questions that I want to ask you is um, about the claims that are and are not regulated on packaging. Clearly, some of this is being relaxed right now um, due to COVID, but prior to COVID, what 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 claims are regulated when we're hearing like gluten-free or nut-free? What's regulated and what is not regulated? If you could also talk a little bit about the maybe processed or is processed in and just tell our listeners a little bit more about what all of that means. The law that I referenced earlier, the Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act of 2004, was very clear on regulating the labeling of top eight allergens that are intended ingredients in products. However, your listeners will be very familiar with phrases like may contain peanuts, made on shared equipment with milk. And these were never regulated by FDA. Uh, They have never been... been, um, Uh, subject to any definitions regulatorily, either whether to include the labels and what the labels say. So what I mean by that is it is up to the manufacturer to decide whether to put what's called a precautionary advisory label on the package. And if If so, what that advisory label should say, what words should be used. There are some very compelling data, much of it coming out of Northwestern University, about consumer attitudes toward precautionary advisory labeling. And it is fairly 
clear from those data that consumers interpret the phrasing of an advisory label in making risk calculations. So for instance, they may uh, be more likely to purchase a product that says made in the same facility as blank than they are something that says made on shared equipment as blank. Because in their mind's eye, they can picture the same line making four different kinds of cookies and that feels unsafe. But hey, if it's in a different room of the same building and there's four different kinds of cookies, I don't have to worry about the pecan ones because my I, my kids allergic to pecans, but that's a football field away. Well, you have no way of knowing that when you're buying a package. You don't. You haven't. You probably haven't toured the facility. You probably haven't spoken with anybody about their manufacturing process. And while it it is certainly incumbent on manufacturers to follow good manufacturing practices. And there are rules in place for how ma ma uh, machines and equipment are cleaned between runs and sanitized. There are, there's much, much written on food safety to avoid pathogens and allergens in food production. So I don't mean any uh, disrespect to those, those procedures. From the consumer perspective, you have no way of knowing the environment in which a product is uh, produced. And therefore, those differences in verbiage between one advisory label and the next are without merit. They're meaningless. They, they, there's no way to define and assess risk based on the choice of language. So my recommendation is if you see your allergen listed anywhere in that precautionary label, you don't eat that food. If you see a precautionary label that doesn't include your allergen, but they've taken the time to develop a precautionary label, my family's made the choice that we can eat the food. So for instance, my son has a peanut allergy. If the precautionary label says may contain tree nuts, we'll let him eat it um, because they've taken the time to, to think through what that is. And that hasn't changed with this new guide, the new guidance does not touch precautionary labels, nor should it, quite honestly, there should be a different process. I know that there are some industry groups looking at standardizing language within their own sectors, but again, that would be a private initiative, not implemented by a federal regulatory agency. If a package says it's peanut free, and of course in the ingredients, it does not have peanut listed within the nutrition um, ingredients or below where it says contains. So there's no peanuts. But if it says peanut free, is that is there some sort of regulatory um, standard that that product has to meet to say, hey, this is peanut free? No. In fact, I have seen products that very loudly proclaim on the front of their packaging peanut free, but actually do have may contain warnings for peanut. There is no def regulatory definition of peanut free, nut free, egg free. You shed light on a lot of things here, Jen. Is there anything that we haven't, that I haven't asked you that you just really want to share with our audience today? I think it's important that we 
deploy the same level of vigilance and diligence in the COVID era that we did before. In many ways, food allergy families were, were born for this moment. We are always sanitizing our surfaces and washing our hands as we prepare and eat food. We are always questioning ingredients and reading labels. We were doing this for, we've been doing this for years. So it's, it's scary because it's such a vast and at this point open-ended crisis. But I would hope that people would feel some sense of self-confidence falling back on skills and practices that they've probably been using for years. Regarding food labeling, it's unfortunate that we may have to take a little more time to do our homework on foods before we eat them, before we buy them. Again, I wanna reassure people that are managing top eight allergens that those are addressed by the FDA and they should not be uh, undeclared substitutions in your food, but it doesn't mean that you don't, that, that, that you're off the hook as far as reading ingredient labels, but you weren't anyway, you were already doing that. And I just want to give people kind of a pat on the back and a uh, reassurance that the skills that we've been using for all these years to keep our children and family members safe and ourselves are the same skills we need today. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you for being here with us today. Um, and I hope to have you back soon. I would love to be back. Thank you for covering this topic. It's my pleasure. Wasn't she awesome, y'all? And so much information about the nutrition label. You can learn more about the nutrition label and legislation surrounding the nutrition label on the blog, www.foodallergyandyourkiddo.com. Remember to check the show notes for more information. And thanks again for joining me today. God bless you and God bless your family. Thanks for listening to this episode of Food Allergy and Your Kiddo with food allergist, Dr. Alice Hoyt. For more information on navigating the world of food allergy, visit www.foodallergyandyourkiddo.com and follow Dr. Hoyt on Twitter at Dr. Alice Hoyt. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Let's take the anxiety and confusion out of food allergy. Food allergy.